And good morning. Good morning. Glory. <laughs> it's a glorious morning. You shock me, man. <laughs> Mark comes walking up here, and I'm thinking, is he going to hand me a piece of paper or something? But anyway, turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. If you are visiting, again, uh, we just, again, welcome you, and just to give you kind of a heads up, we're uh, in the middle of studying the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we're trying to do it in chronological order. Um, again, we're just weeks away from dealing with his crucifixion, dealing with his death. Um, he has a lot more to say and to teach uh, towards the end of his life. And uh, we go into a series of parables here, and uh, we pick it up. Again, at a very interesting subject, and, uh, and that, that subject is discipleship, you know. Um, if you've been a Christian uh, for any length of time, or you've read through the Bible, um, you just assume that you are a disciple. You know, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. Well... Maybe, that, maybe today's message will challenge you when it comes to that subject. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have trusted him that when he died on the cross, he took your sins, past, present, future, that indeed makes you a Christian. You can actually say, I am a Christian. I'm, I follow Christ. I follow his teaching. Um, but there seems to be a difference between just the Christian, the follower, and what is a, a disciple? Not a lot is said, actually, in the Bible about discipleship. We just assume there's a lot. And, um, but anyway, let me read the text. We'll stand up and we'll pray over it, and we'll ask for God's help. Starting with verse 25... Luke 14, 25, there went great multitudes with him. I'll give you a second to turn there. Luke 14, 25. There went a great multitudes with him, and he turned, and he said unto them, If any man come to me and hates not his father or mother or wife or children... Brethren, sisters, yea, his own life. Also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I give you a chance to turn that off, please. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Thus happily after he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king 
sits not down first and consults whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is, is yet a great way off, sends not an ambassador or an ambassador or a delegate and desires condition of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all, that, ha, uh, that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now, salt's good. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. And again, he says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Wow. Let's stand and let's pray together. Bible in hand, please. Father, thank you again for this word, your written word, Lord, and your spoken word. Father, again, without your Holy Spirit, as it were, the paracletus, the one who would come alongside of us to illuminate, to make sense of it, without him, this would just be another book. And for many today, it just gathers dust. But Lord, I pray, Father, that as we look at this a little more carefully, that you would give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Lord, show us how to make application of it. Why would we be like the natural man that looks into a mirror and then walks away forgetting what he's seen? No, Lord, when we look into this mirror, the reflection of you, the reflection of your word, we don't want to walk away forgetting anything. So please, Lord, I just pray that by the help of your Holy Spirit, there would be something said today that would change our lives or challenge our lives. Thank you again for this word, Lord. We never take it for granted. Lord, that's why we stand with it in our hands asking again, give us ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said together, amen, amen. Again, when you look at this passage, especially there in verse 26, it's somewhat shocking. You kind of wince at it, don't you? You look at this, you know, you got to hate mom, dad, you got to hate your kids if you want to be a disciple. And I'll take you take your breath, won't it, a little bit. For anyone that's a student of the scriptures, the brakes get tapped a little bit and you go, man, I got to look into this a little more careful, carefully. In order to really get the full picture of what's happening here, again, I don't want to belabor it. I don't want to drag it out. But you really got to have the context in place. I don't want to go through all of last week's teaching. Man, I, I've, I've got that, that rep now that I, I completely teach two studies in one. I like to go over. But, and I'll try not to do that. But if you remember, if you were here last week, there was this feast that Jesus was invited to. It wasn't an honest feast or an honest invitation. It really was dishonest. Again, it was to entrap Jesus. See, what the religious leaders had done, especially the chief Pharisee, one of the rulers even of the Sanhedrin, they put a guy in there with a disease called dropsy. Today, 
we have technology, we have the medical field that can deal with this issue. But back then, you're talking about disfigurement, you're talking about severe bloating, we're talking about really retaining a lot of water, your feet bloating up, where you can't even walk. So they put him right in the middle of this feast. Now, you would think, well, that Pharisee must be a kind person. Well, not really. In their minds, in their ideology, their theology, anyone with a disfigurement or anyone that's poor, someone who has been disfigured, maybe he's lost a foot or an arm, they were considered cursed by God. And so in their mind, why would I invite anyone to a feast, especially a religious feast like this, why would I invite anyone who has been cursed by God? So highly unlikely that anyone would be invited. Well, Jesus, he sees it. He knows exactly what's going on. The first thing that he observes in this meal is that those who had been invited began to jockey around for the best seat in the house. Their mannerisms and custom was that the closer you were to the host, the more important you were. So, of course, when they came in, they said, listen, let's get close to the host. Boy, that was a, some poetry there, right? Let's get close to the host. Uh, they would say the people will look at us as if we're, we're, some, uh, we're important. Jesus says that, and he actually says, hey, no, no, don't do that. That's foolish. Because if you're not all that, you're only important in your own eyes, the host might come in, see you at the head of the table there, and go, hey, my friend, what are you doing here? You got to take the lower table. And then as you're going back to the lower table, everybody's going, <laughs> he wasn't all that, was he? An embarrassment, you take that lower seat. He says, you don't do that. No, when you come and you're invited to a feast, take the lowest place. You don't need to be noticed. You don't need the place of prominence. You just take that lower seat. And if by chance the host does see you and said, my friend, what are you doing here? Come here. No, you're more important to me than that. Come on up to the higher seat. Well, you can lift up your head and guess where I'm going. I shared that little story with you last week about being invited to breakfast with Billy Graham. Boy, was I humiliated. <laughs> Harry, you're not all that. <laughs> then he dealt with the host. And he noticed that the host, he, he didn't invite those that were more, I don't know, unfortunate. Only this man with the dropsy. He says, listen, when you're going to have a dinner and if you want to be honored by God and you want to be exalted by God, you've got to broaden this invitation list. And he tells this story about a guy who had a feast. And he says to him, listen, I want you to go and invite these guests. And they make these lame excuses. Oh, man, I, I bought a piece of property I haven't seen yet. You know what? I bought five yoke of oxen. I haven't worked them. I haven't tested them out. I, need, I can't come to your dinner. Or one guy even uses the lame excuse, I got a wife. 
Not saying anything. That was his excuse. And, and, and it's said that this host got angry. So he says, then I want you to go out and I want you to go into the highways and the byways. I want you to go in, literally, go into the alleys, go into the street. And the list that he gives to him for, for, for invitation, he goes, I want you to bring in the poor, the maimed, the halt. I want you to bring in the blind. And you look at this list and you think, rhyme and reason. Why is Jesus pointing out those specific people? Every one of them needs assistance. Everyone needs help even to get there. Some literally have to be taken by the hand and led there. Some have to be carried. The word halt there in my old king literally means one without a foot. One without a hand. He's disfigured. He goes, you go. And when he did that, he even said, came back to the service. Hey, listen, I did that. And guess what? There's even more room. More room. Yeah, it's not filled yet. Oh, good. Then now I want you to go get, leave the city and now go into the countryside. Go and invite everyone now. You might have to walk a little bit between the houses and stuff and the farms, but I want you to come. I want the, God's desire through this parable is that his banquet's going to be filled. That's what his desire is. And that lines up with the scriptures. What? It's his will that none perish, but what? How many? Oh, guess what that means in the Greek? Hey, you've been studying. Oh. Every time you leave out here, I'm going to put a sign. My buddy down in Florida has this as you're leaving his property, his church property. It says you are now entering the mission field. I'm going to put one of those signs out there. When you guys go out, you follow that, you're supposed to follow the arrow, that little arrow, you're going to see a sign. Hey, you now enter into the mission field. Go into the highways and the byways. And if you have to go into the hedges, go all around and invite, the, invite them. And if you need help, I'm here to assist you. That's that lane. So then all of a sudden, what we read in verse 25, that Jesus leaves that party and it says a great, great multitudes, great multitudes with him. He turned and he said to them, now, okay, in the part, he leaves this banquet, he's done teaching these parables, and as he's leaving, he just doesn't see a multitude, he sees a great multitudes. I don't even think that's proper English. He sees a huge crowd. Now, when you read this thing, it's somewhat shocking to you. You, you, you read it and it's all, you almost wince at it. But what helps me right away is that last verse we read. If you've got an ear to hear, let him hear. What this is telling me, or what that verse is telling me, there is something profound being taught here. There is something that only the person with spiritual ears is going to, to hear. The letters to the churches there in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Seven letters written to them. And you start off with Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Philadelphia and Laodicea. You see all the, and every church at the very end, God says, if you got an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit 
says to the church, there is something here for someone here today who has spiritual ears they need to hear. They need to hear this. Is it applicable to everyone? Now, I, I have to tell you, I wish it was. The subject of discipleship, I wish it was. In fact, I would encourage every one of you to pr really try to listen today and ask the Holy Spirit, what is in this message that's for me personally? Again, he compelled these people to come. The grace that, that Luke is displaying here is just staggering. You don't see this kind of grace being displayed in Matthew, Mark, or even John. Some would say it's because that at this time, the crucifixion's over. Jesus is home with the Lord when Luke pens this out, but he has a relationship with none other than Paul the Apostle. At this time, when Luke is penning this out, most likely Paul is in prison somewhere near Caesarea by the sea there. And I can only imagine that Luke has had an earful of the doctrine of grace. This invitation, come blind, maim, uh, halt, anyone that needs assistance, the language indicates is not to let anyone deter you from coming. Not the world and not religious leaders, even though they might have an agenda for Jesus, don't let that stop you from coming. Now he sees this crowd and he knows that they are following him for various reasons. And we can only speculate what the reasons are. Maybe some are following him because there's still those who want to try to find fault with Jesus. They want to hear maybe a contradiction. Or maybe they just want to, again, hopefully he'll break one of the laws where we can finally declare that this guy is a false prophet. Well, there might be some there who are coming because, you know, they're just envious. It does tell us that a lot of the scribes and the religious leaders, such as the Sadducees, they were envious. They would say, look how many people are following that rabbi. They never had multitudes following them. And it could be that maybe some are actually following him because they want to see another miracle. Maybe there were some in this crowd who had heard, man, you give him a couple loaves of bread and some fish, you should see what he does with those. Let's go get a free meal. And even today, there are people who would say, I am following Jesus, and I would love to say, what is your reason? Why do you follow him today? Why? And I bet you, well, I don't bet literally, but... I bet you there's a lot of different reasons. Notice what it says in verse 25 again, that he turns and he sees these multitudes. The one thing that's, that stands out here to me, and it should you as well, is that Jesus is not impressed by a large gathering or a huge crowd. Now, the rabbi of the day, being very envious, it's very safe to assume that if it was multitudes following them, oh my goodness, to get their head through the door would be a feat. 
Well, they would really think the size would really matter. But as a student of the scriptures, what we have discovered, even as a church together, God's he's not that impressed with how wide the thing is, how many people there is. Back in the day, in my younger days as a pastor, that was the question when you go to a conference. When the Calvary Chapel movement just started, it just kind of started launching out, and the first question one pastor would ask another pastor, guess what it is? How many people do you got coming? I used to be so lame, I'd go out and try to count the cars in the parking lot. We had 25 cars, Bill, in the parking lot today. You know. God's not impressed. A pastor that I look up to immensely, John Corson, I remember sitting at a table with five other pastors, and we were kind of engaged in this kind of a conversation. And, and being seasoned, John said, Brothers, if you have five in your church, it's, it's five more than you deserve. Boy, did that not kind of pop the bubble a little bit. He's not impressed. In fact, sometimes I think Jesus, when he teaches like this, he almost wants to thin them out a bit. Listen, the coming to the banquet was free. It was an invitation. Just come. Just come. But within that group of coming, there were those that desired to be a disciple. Coming is one thing. Coming to him with your burdens. Coming with, to him with your sin issues. Coming to him with needs. That's one thing. But it's a completely, it's another thing when all of a sudden within your heart and in your mind, you went, you know what? I want a little bit more than that. I want to be a disciple. I want to be a disciple. Now I believe that this message is important because, and especially for today, because across the board today, across Christendom, I'm not talking about evangelical, Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christian. I'm talking about Christendom. They have dumbed down this subject of discipling or discipleship. They have dumbed down the idea of a desire to be a disciple. Why? Because probably they've read passages such as this. You gotta love Jesus. Well, no, you gotta hate your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters. You gotta just you gotta love me more than them. That's some that's a hard pill to swallow for many. And there is this dumbing down as it were. There's more interest today. For the church to become, and I'm not, I am not saying this to slander, but really today there's more emphasis and attempts to make the church more like a country club than the ecclesia, the church of God, the set apart. Now I have no problems with cooking some burgers and putting a tent out there and just saying, guys, come as you are, bring your coffee. And if we ever carpet this, that law will fall apart. Pray that we don't carpet this place. Now, I'm all for the fellowship, having a fellowship. But when the emphasis is placed on that, something's not quite right. 
It is harsh language. Three times he repeats himself where he says, you cannot be. You cannot be, you cannot be. You can't be my disciple unless. You know, there are those that think, well, if I just do a, a, a good enough job in this being a disciple thing, well, that will make me sort of like a wishy-washy disciple. I search the scriptures, there's no wishy-washy disciples. Well, maybe if I just kind of do, meet him halfway, and there, well, there's no halfway disciple either. I, I, remember your wedding vows? You're standing up there with the love of your life, you know, and you're just batting your eyes at each other, and you're... Can you imagine if the minister's up there, you know, will you receive this guy? Yeah, for better, for worse, oh, better, for richer, poorer, or oh, richer. In sickness, and oh, in sickness, oh. you know, in adversity, prosperity, oh, in the, you know, until death do you, well, wait, well, what? Well, well, wait a minute. What happens if your mate would say, can I just do this like 95%? Does it got to be 100% all in, you know? For better, for worse, for poorers, you know, for richers or poor, you know. You know, what would you think? You would think, wait a minute, I'm not marrying this person. I mean, if they can't promise me that all the chips are in 100%, <laughs> you'd probably would tap the brakes at that, wouldn't you? Well, some Christians, they have that mentality. You know, I'm okay giving him 75%. I, I can do you a little better. Maybe I can even give 90%. Oh, I can do a little better. But listen, gang, this is a tough pill to swallow. To be a disciple of Jesus, it requires 100%. That's why I think there's a big difference between those who recognizes the sin issue they receive Christ as Lord and Savior. They know because there's a witness of the Holy Spirit that they are born again. And then as the time goes on, it can be a year, two years, five years. Then all of a sudden you're going, I want a little more than that. I want to be a disciple. I want to be a disciple. A disciple, what is it? Well, if you were to look it up in the Greek concordance, you would find words like pupil. You would find um, a learner. Yeah, a better word for a, a disciple is an apprentice. How many of you guys ever served in an apprentice program? Raise your hand if you have, right? Yeah, I was too. You know, I remember there was an either or given to me, and I won't go into the details, but either or you did this or, or that, you're going there. So it gives you an idea. But I remember at the age of 16... I became an apprentice in a, in a local body shop. And, uh, and what we did is we restored antique cars. I don't mean just vintage cars. and We restored Auburns and Duesenbergs and Cords. And we, we um, restored Overlands, cars you've never even heard of. And we would build them back to the original condition. And I was an apprentice then. I mean, this guy that was my boss, my master, the one I was learning from, literally told me how to sweep the floor properly. I learned everything from this man. His name was Frank. He was like a, a dad to me. 
And I remember I would start even talking like him. He would always stand like this when he's looking at something. You know what? Here I am as a 16-year-old kid looking at my first restore, and I'm going, huh. I was learning everything from him. I loved him. And by the time I was done that apprenticeship, my last car I restored was a 1936 Auburn Phaeton, and it won a presidential cup. You just, you that's what a, 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 a disciple is. He's just not just a Christian. He's studying his master. He's learning how to fold paper. He's learning how to answer questions. He's learning to be like him. That's why when I see younger Christians and they fall or they trip or they stumble, I'm all right with that. Hey, get up. A righteous man knows how to get up and dust himself off. He knows how to. It's not how you fall, it's how you get up. That's a Christian. A disciple is a little different than that. Now, let's look at this language. If any man comes to me and he doesn't hate his father, mother, wife, sister, brother, sister, I'm sorry, wife, children, and brother and sister, yea, even his own life. Now, look, it's, it's emphatic. You cannot be my disciple. Literally, to be my disciple, what he is saying here is that you have to supremely love me. He's not telling us to hate. He's saying that you've got to love me supremely over any natural affection you might have. Natural affection for your wife, your husband, natural affection you would have for your children. You go ask a mom and dad, hey, how much do you love my kid or your kids? Many will say, I would die for my kid. Now, with that in mind, God wants you to love him even more. That's why I said, you look, you read this and you kind of wince at it. We know he's not telling us to hate for crying out loud. Exodus chapter 20, the, the door to commandments. He says, listen, I want you to honor your mother and your father. Something that is being lost today at a rapid rate, by the way. Just a side note. Dads and mom, you don't teach your children to respect you. Then, then you're really teaching them to break one of God's laws. Kids, the Bible says to honor your mother. And it doesn't say 75% of the time. It literally, remember when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders about breaking the law? One of the examples how they were breaking the law, they had this thing called Corbin. How many of you guys remember that Bible story? Honor your mother and father, but you say Corbin, then you're, you're kind of released from that law. What Corbin meant, if you dedicated anything to God, then you never had to honor your mother or your father. It belonged to God. I'll give you sort of like nuts and bolts to it. Here your mom and dad, they're living in the same house they've lived in for 50 years. You notice that their couch has springs coming up through the mattress. You can't say they got newspapers sitting on it. Now, this might be an extreme kind of thing here. but And then you in your home, you've got two nights. you got a couch upstairs and then one down in the den. And dad comes to say, hey, hey, son. You know, mom just got jabbed in the thigh by one of those springs. She's bleeding out on the floor. Any chance you might be able to just kind of give me one of those couches? Oh, sorry, Pop. I dedicated that to God. They belong to the Lord. Tell mom to get bandaged, you know, and just 
He says, you break your own law. They broke the law when it came to the Sabbath. He goes, if your donkey or your ox falls into the ditch, you've got a way to manipulate the law of God and help them out. But if a human being falls in there, you'd say, wait till Monday. No, he's not telling us to break his law. Jesus even said, I have come to fulfill the law and the, and the prophets. There in Ephesians chapter 5, he encourages the husband to love his wife, not to hate the wife, to love the wife. Well, how much? As much as Christ loved the church. Jesus even gave that command, right? What's the greatest command? To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He adds even your strength. And then he says, love your neighbor even as you love yourself. He's not telling us, hate should not even be a part of your life. If you ever catch yourself saying, oh, I hate that person, ask the Holy Spirit just to convict your heart and get that sin before the Lord. What does he tell us in John chapter 13? I'll read it to you. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I loved you. You should love one another, and by this will everyone know that you are my disciples by the love you have one for another so again even Paul said though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I have not love what am I you're just a noise man you sound like a sick symbol did you ever hear a sick symbol they make this hideous noise Part of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, is love. So he's not telling us. It's not a contradiction. It's a comparison. That our love for him has to outweigh all our natural love for one another. Listen, to you, this might not even seem challenging. I hope it is. But sometimes we're so familiar with the Bible or a Bible passage, we read it over and over. We read passages like this, and we just skip over it. And we'll go on to the next thing. But to people in other, other parts of the world, there might be people even right now as we're gathering together, someone around the world, somewhere else might be reading this, who might be a Muslim, who might be a Buddhist, who might be Jewish, who might, who might be Islam. Did you know in the Islamic faith, if you convert to Christianity, it is the sentence of death? Did you know within Judaism, the Orthodox Jew, if you convert to Christianity, they have a shiva for you. That is, they have a funeral for you. They consider you dead. And somebody picks up a passage that's been converted into Christianity, and they read, if you don't hate your mom and your dad, if you don't love, if you don't love me with a, a supreme love, you can't be my disciple. Imagine how shocking it is to them to read a passage like this. And it still should be shocking to us as well. To them, it's a decision. It's a deliberate choice. Just a couple months ago, we had Aaron and Jenna here from the Bible school, Nepal and India. Jerry told me this story that there was some, there was some students that went to the Indian school in India, and um, when asked what they were going to do during their semester break, this is what they told, this is what they told Jer. Well, we'll probably go into the forest, 
And we'll probably hang out there because we made a conscious choice to come here and we're no longer welcome home. They would rather make a choice to be a disciple and they love the Lord more than they love their natural family. And so therefore, that conscious choice, they have to spend their breaks in the forest. Look, Paul the Apostle fell in love with Jesus as well. He would even say in Acts chapter 20, none of these things move me, neither do I count even my own life dear to me. Remember, unless you, unless you hate mother, dad, even how you hate yourself at the end of that verse. There are some people that won't make that choice of entering into this apprenticeship because they're, to be honest with you, they're more in love with themselves than they are with God. No, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying, you know, your salvation is etched in the foundations in heaven. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to making a decision to follow Christ, they're more in love with a natural affection for self. They're more in love with themselves than with God. Look, Jesus said in Matthew 10, take up your cross. And if you don't, you're not worthy of me. He also said in Matthew 16, to deny yourself, pick up your cross. Look what he says again in verse 27, that whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me again, he cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that look like to pick up your own cross? Listen, I know, I, I know what it isn't, by the way. It's not picking up someone else's cross. It's not actually picking up Jesus's cross. It's a cross you have to pick up. It's your cross. It's your burden. It's you, whatever it is that you have to bear up under and you've got to bear it. It's yours. This is what the cross does mean, though. It means reproach. It means humiliation. It means embarrassment. You see, the Persians invented this form of execution called crucifixion. The Persians did it, and then it was adopted by the Romans. It was a brutal way to die, but there was reasons why the Roman government wanted to crucify people. Num number one, it was to be a lesson for everyone to see. That's why when, they, when the sentence was given that he was to be crucified there on the Roman Praetorium ground, the courthouse, as it were, they would march the criminal through the town square so everyone would see the humiliation. Everyone would see the embarrassment. And they would go, whatever that guy did, I am not going to go there. And the second thing that the crucifixion did was that it showed just for a brief moment that that person was the, under the heel of the government, that he at that time was totally submitted to Rome with a cross on his back, dragging it through, making a declaration for once in this guy's life, now he is under submission to the Roman government. When it says to pick up, your pick up your cross, and if you don't, 
What he's saying here is when you do do that as a disciple, what you are showing, what the lesson is given, is that now you are under total submission to Jesus. That you have submitted yourself. Not only are we called to, to love him supremely, and not only are we called as a disciple that we have to make choices, and some of those choices might not be easy choices, but it is a lesson that's being displayed. There's also a cost of being a disciple. Notice what he says in verse 28. He says, which of you intending to build a tower? You don't sit down first and you count the cost. Whether he has, has sufficient, he has enough money to finish it. Verse 29, that's happily after he has laid the foundations. He's so excited about the foundation and yet he's not able to finish it. And then people begin to mock him saying, this is the man that built and now he's not able to finish it. This tower that he's referring to most likely was a tower in the middle of a vineyard. And the tower was used for two reasons. Number one, it was to be an outlook, of course. There would be someone up there checking out the vineyard, making sure the foxes don't burrow underneath, making sure no one comes in and steals. But it was also used as a storage house. But there in the middle of this vineyard, if you were passing by that vineyard, the first thing you would set your eyes on, not the grapes, not the vineyard, you would be looking at that tower and you would go, now that is one knockout vineyard there. But you're looking at a tower. You know, it's sort of like this, gang. Have you ever rode through a neighborhood and you're just so impressed with the, with the houses there? One house after another house and you're looking at it and you're going, man, I am so impressed with this neighborhood. I could live here. Then all of a sudden as you get closer to the middle, you see an unfinished one. And you look at it and it's got plywood on the windows and it's got tarp still dangling. The sod is not even put in place yet. It's just an unfinished. And it just looks, well, to be honest with you, it's not attractive at all. Now, when you go home, what is the number one uno thing that you think of when you get home? It's not about how lovely the place was. Did you see that? Right in the middle of that place was that old nasty house. It wasn't even finished. I'm not going to live there. It is so unattractive. You see, with a disciple, he's got to make the conscious decision that there might be a cost to all this. And you've got to sit back and however you pray, Lord, I know you're calling me to disciple and I know there's building involved, but really do I have what it takes? Because the last thing I would ever want is somebody to come by some vineyard of yours and the only thing they notice is how unattractive it is because I couldn't finish it. And when you become a disciple of Christ, there is building. It isn't always glamorous. You know, I look at some people's, I am attracted to it, I'll say that. There are men in my life that God has placed there. Most of them are home with the Lord now. In fact, the one, the one I used to admire was a man by the name of Hobart Grazier. I would see 
the effort he would put in his, he was a professor in a seminary one, and, and I was always attracted to how studious he was, or studious he was, and how he studied, and then he would go to India, and then he would spend his time being a missionary, he would come back, and I'd look at him, and I'd go, man, there's a disciple, there is someone who loves this more than he loves anything else in life, here's a guy that understands that he's going to build something, and that he's taken the time, and he's counted the cost, because he doesn't want to bring reproach, he doesn't want people to look at it and go, man, that's unattractive. And that's the question today. I get being a Christian, you've brought your sorrows, you've brought your, your sin and your issues, and you're saved and we should rejoice. But to say that I am automatically a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's where you tap the brakes a little bit and you go, am I really? And if I've declared this and I'm not able to finish it, then the kingdom of God, as Rich says once in a pardon me, once in a while, the kingdom gets another black eye. It kind of looks like this. Hey, hey, where's Joe? Wasn't Joe really involved with the church? Wasn't he teaching? I just saw him down at the double A, man. He's totally walked. Man, how unattractive is that? Uh, that? And he just brings, again, the kingdom a black eye. There's got to be a consideration about the cost. And not only that, if we keep reading, look at it down in verse 31. What king going to make war against another king that he doesn't first sit down and he consults whether he's able with 10,000 to defeat 20,000? Again, there is building as a disciple, but there's also battling. To be a disciple, I have to be honest with you, it's not always glamorous, it's not always easy. But I'll tell you what, it's always glorifying to the kingdom and it's always attractive when, when you count the cost and when you understand that sometimes there's other delegations that need to come and you sort this thing out because ultimately you want to bring peace to this thing. You guys still with me a little bit? You understand now there might be a little difference between being a Christian and being a disciple? You know, it tells us in Matthew to go, therefore, into all the world and then to make disciples, baptizing them in the name. I'll be honest with you. That is a confusing verse to me now because you can't make disciples. It's one translation says, well, then train a disciple that I get. But to think that I can just look at somebody and go, OK, hocus pocus, you're a disciple now. That's contradiction. We are to go and to train. I love it when a church has a school of ministry, but only if, they, only if they love God supremely and only if they have counted the cost, only if they understand that what they're doing eventually is going to be attractive for the world to see and other believers to see. But don't come in half-hearted. Don't come in and then just drop off because what happens then? People begin to mock. Oh, there's another one. That's why I don't follow Christ. They start off well, but man, look where they're at today. He then, Rich, you can make your way out. He then finishes it by saying this. Likewise, whosoever he be of you, verse 33, you that forsakes not, not all that he has. He, you know, he is willing to love God supremely. He is willing to pick up his cross. He is willing to count the cost. He's not afraid of the battle, you know. 
He's willing to forsake everything out there because, you know, he just wants to honor. He wants to be attractive to others. He says that if the salt, if the salt has lost its savior, wherewith shall, shall it be? I love salt. It's almost sinful. It's funny. I do. I, I probably eat way too much of it. Until, but until I hear my doctor say, lay off the salt, I'm going to keep. And maybe then I'll be disrespecting. No, never mind. I, uh, there's a picture floating around here, and it was me as a kid. I think I was about 16 or 17 with my brother, Dennis. And right in between of us, we had the salt, not the, a salt shaker, but the salt, the blue thing, you know, with the nozzle, you know. But what he, he's not talking about really the taste of it. If, the, if, if salt loses the purpose of salt, that's what he's referring to. Jesus even used it in a parable. If the salt loses its purpose, it's just good. Throw it out and let it be trotted under the foot of man. Let's make a path out of it. But here, what is salt biblically? Well, salt was used as an antiseptic, and it was used as a preservative. It was also used as a salary. The Roman soldier would call it salarium, or it's where we get our English word salary from it. You see, they would get, for pay, they would get a little bit of silver, and then they'd get this pouch of salt. They would hold it or hang it off their belt. They would use it as an antiseptic. They're in a battle, they get cut, boom, this is going to hurt, and they dump salt in it kill the germs. It was also, if they're in the, in the middle of a battlefield and they're trying to eat between the battle and they're having fish and they're not able to finish, they would use it as a preservative. And Jesus even said, you are the salt. Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. You right now, listen, I mean, it might be hard to understand, but you right now are preserving the world. Did you know that? You're saying, well, we're not doing a great job. <laughs> well, yeah. but you are. In fact, when in Genesis chapter 18, when, when God is dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah and he wants to annihilate it, he literally tells Abraham, I can't do it because there's 10 righteous in that city. If there is 10 righteous, I can't destroy them. In other words, I can't judge the righteous with the unrighteous. I got to get them out. And the day that he takes you out of here, the rapture, harpoapazo, then there is no longer a preservative. And he that was restrained, when he is removed, game's on. Listen, the bottom line is this. You are right now, as a disciple, a preservative, an antiseptic. But if you lose the Savior, the taste, the purpose, then what good is it? The idea is it's not good for anything. All right, you wince at this. You look at this. Maybe some of you are more confused now than when you walked in. Now, I thought I was. I want to be. Don't raise your hand, but raise it in your heart. If you have a desire to be more than just a Christian, you know in your heart that God has called you to do something different you want to be attractive for the kingdom of God. You want people to see you as a city that sits on a hill. You want to be that antiseptic or that. 
And you're saying, where does it start then, Harry? Because I want, is it just a matter of repentance? I, I don't think so. I think the answer in closing is in chapter 15, which we'll cover next week. But the first verse, if you'll look at it in your Bibles, then draw they near unto him. I believe with all my heart that if you desire in your heart to be his disciple, that you're willing to love him supremely. You're willing to count the cost. You know there's building and battling. You know there's something a little bit different and you're ready to say, I am. It's not an issue of just saying, I'm going to be determined. I'm switching on the switch. No, I think it's as we draw near to him. As it were, you just come and you sit at his feet. He's going to, next week, we'll talk about it, Lord willing. He's going to talk about you know, the lost coin. What's first? He's going to talk about the, what's the first one? The lost, lost sheep. Lost sheep. Then he's going to talk about the lost coin. And then he's going to talk about literally the lost son. Some call him the prodigal. But the declaration from the father was he's lost, he's dead, he's found, he's alive. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But for tonight, which is today, would you stand with me? I know that it's more than just right now purposing in your heart or purposing in your mind that there's more. You know, when I was a kid and I read this, a kid, I was a young man. I read this, to love God more than you love mother. That was a struggle for me because I, I didn't think I could. I didn't think I could. I didn't think I could love or to love him more than I love my kids. I just thought that's an impossibility. I, I can never, I can never be a disciple. I can be a servant. I can even have maybe be a pastor, but to really be this disciple like this, that was a struggle until I realized that all I had to do was just sit quietly at his feet and the love that he requires, that supreme love, to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. But it's still starts with a desire. You have to have the desire to want to be a disciple. Would you lower your head just for a second? Please lower it. It just encouraged other people. I just want just by the raising the hand and then lowering it quickly, if you have that sense in your heart, you want to be more than just the Christian. Not, I'm not belittling it. I understand how important that is, but you've got this call upon your life to be a disciple and to hear to love, to love him supremely and to bear a cross. You're finding that difficult right now. Would you raise your hand and then just lower it back down? I totally understand. Father, I thank you. Be honest with you, Lord, I just, 
really don't know how to end this. I wish we could just go outside and all those that raised their hand, we could just sit in a circle and just wait on you. To call out to you. That you would re rearrange what we think is important. That we would find ourselves supremely in love with you. An agape love Lord, that only comes through your Holy Spirit. Lord, time doesn't permit that. But right now, we'll take this, this time, this opportunity to lift up our hearts to you. And we pray, Father, that you would, Lord, spend time with us, even in this last song. Lord, that our love for you would just grow immensely. That we'll understand that there might be a, a choice, something we have to die to. But we want to be so attractive that the world might see it and realize that we have submitted our lives unto a new government, <laughs> the government of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Commit our hearts to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen. Let's just worship.